Welcome to Embedded Finance Unplugged, the podcast series from Andaria. For this special episode, we're here at the FinTech Talents Festival at the Brewery in London. I'm your host, Graham Barrett, and I'm going to be interviewing some of the key speakers from Andaria's stand. I really hope you enjoy the conversations. I'm here with Bryony Krikorian Slade. She is Payments Innovation and Resilience at UK Finance. Nice to see you here, Bryony. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Now, you've just shared a session, haven't you, around digital identity. What was discussed during that session? So we were looking both at a micro level in terms of what digital ID can enable for individual firms. And then we also talked a little bit about the macro picture of a roadmap for digital ID for the UK. In terms of individual firm embedding, we had someone there from an ID provider, IDverse. We had a financial services provider, Lloyds, and we also had someone from a retailer who's active in 25 different countries, Glovo, uh, a delivery app business. And what was really interesting is they've got you know very similar kind of use cases across the different environments. So digital ID can be used for anti-money laundering or know your customer purposes when you're onboarding customers. It could be used for monitoring fraud and compliance as you go through customer journeys. And I guess crucially for this environment, looking into the future, it can be a, a key enabler for propositions like open banking, like open finance, where you need to be sharing data across multiple providers, financial services, retail, other providers, and having a kind of single source of digital ID is absolutely crucial for that. We also built on the previous panel that was looking at some financial inclusion aspects and how digital ID, smarter approach to digital ID can help with that. So taking different data points where someone might have very scant documentation, but taking different data points in their lives to try and build a digital ID for them and therefore like promote financial inclusion as a whole. And in terms of digital ID, how do you see the banking and finance industry here in the UK introducing it? And maybe what are the security implications behind it as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting approach that we talked about during the session as well. So from a macro perspective, the UK is in a very different position to some other countries where there's been perhaps a government-based backing to, to digital ID. For example, India, which has led itself in a very short space of time, one or two years, to huge uptake of their UPI instant payment system. In the UK, we're a very long way from kind of having a centralised digital ID, perhaps cultural, political reasons for that. But there is a, a big appetite for creating a reusable ID to be able to promote these and enable these different propositions. Um, so in the UK, we have a kind of bifurcated approach to digital ID. We have one ID for public services. We have a, a separate market for commercial ID with about 40 commercial providers in the UK. And what we're finding is a lot of our members, UK Finance primarily represents banking and fintech and financial services. A lot of our members are starting to embed with an individual commercial provider. Yoti is one that we talked about today that has partnered with Lloyds. But what our members are really keen about is ensuring that that is an interoperable system. So even if they partner with one commercial partner, they can then provide interoperability with other environments the customer is going to be interacting with so that we can have those kind of retail use cases enabled and other core use cases. Another thing that everyone on the panel was really keen on, we're seeing the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology really pushing forward use cases that would promote a reusable ID, so kind of cataloguing them and promoting them in the industry so that there's more energy behind a kind of trust framework that they've created. So 
really trying to kind of turbo boost the growth of reusable ID in the UK. That's great to hear. And you're also very busy here at FinTech Talents, aren't you? This afternoon, you're chairing another panel about buy now, pay later. What challenges exist around buy now, pay later, particularly in a cost of living crisis? Yeah, again, a really interesting topic that UK Finance has been looking at for a number of years. It's obviously clearly still a growth area. And what's really interesting is BMPL models being deployed for different sectors. So, for example, there's a a kind of very bespoke BMPL model that works with the education sector. And it's also interesting to see how it interacts with embedded finance. So often those two terms are conflated, but buy now, pay later is basically deferred credit. Embedded finance just means you don't see the provider behind the retailer, but some retailers are kind of combining both. So for example, on the panel this afternoon, we've got Samsung, they've got embedded finance, and they also are offering a buy now, pay later provision. There are clear kind of benefits to it. So customers love it. And actually, in some cases, the providers on the panel think that there are clearer repayment terms around BMPL than there are, for example, behind credit cards, for example. But at the moment, it is a primarily unregulated sector and we do need to ensure as going into a kind of cost of living or continuing cost of living crisis that we keep an eye on that across provider credit exposure and things like credit rating agencies can help with that and you know we're starting to see that with the BNPL sector providing data to those agencies. Now let's just finish up the conversation I know you guys at UK Finance have been busy over the summer with this future payments review so Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, Joe Garner, former CEO of Nationwide, was asked to do this review by the Chancellor back in the summer, and UK Finance has been working very actively with its members to respond to that. We uh, kind of submitted a, a very extensive evidence base on the consumer payments that are happening in the moment in the UK and how well they are provided for. But we did identify that central bank digital currency and new payments architecture, which are two major infrastructure pieces, that are going to be built over the next sort of five, 10 years will cost like 10 to 20 billion for the payment sector. So we've flagged concerns around needing to ensure the use cases for each of those are really clear. So is there a a really clear kind of use case for digital cash in the retail environment? What do retailers really think about that? Equally with the new payments architecture, is it trying to do too much? Should we keep the scope kind of narrow on those use cases where it can really move the dial? And obviously the new payments architecture can be an underlying layer for open banking. So one of our points is let's kind of leverage what we've got already and really push forward with open banking. And we expect Joe Garner to kind of come out with those sort of views as well. How do we expedite the growth of open banking in the UK? And we're hoping that we'll hear more about that alongside the autumn budget. Perfect. Well, Bryony, Krikorian, Slade, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you. Joining me now is David Cox. He's the payments lead at Virgin Media. David, nice to meet you. Angie, yeah, very good morning. Yeah, very exciting event. Yeah, really good to see you here at FinTech Talent. So let's start off about payments. You're the payments lead at Virgin Media. Where are we today with payments, both from, I guess, an industry perspective and a Virgin Media perspective? Wow. Yeah. I remember when payments used to be very boring and it was just direct debits and card payments, but over the last few years it's just exploded into uh, so many options. Customers used to be very traditional with uh, direct debits as a default payment method, and then they'd use their debit and credit card occasionally, but now we've moved into wallets, open banking, and I think the challenge is every merchant and every business is different, and consumers 
are very different as well. I, I think when we all went into that lockdown, if you remember that, customers started to use digital channels which they'd never used before. So I think we're in a very different place to where we were even three or four years ago. As a business, Virgin Media and O2 are focusing on how acquisition can work really swiftly and quickly. And I think we're also looking at remembering that not everyone has a smartphone and you still need to support those that take their bill to the post office and pay in the old-fashioned manual way. So, so yeah, it's supporting all those different channels and making sure they work for the consumer. Yeah, so that kind of inclusivity side as well, the financial inclusivity, yeah, sure. Now, you mentioned open banking there. You're speaking on a session about open banking here at Fintech Talents. How has this changed the payment sector? Now, open banking has a great deal of opportunities for all merchants. There's two elements to it. One is making payments, so to make your payment really swiftly and quickly, like you do a car payment, but it is just slightly quicker and for merchants, slightly cheaper. But there's also the data element, which is becoming more important. So when you onboard a customer onto your website, you can use open banking to pre-populate lots of data and fields, which makes the onboarding much much more quick and, and fast and easy for the consumer. Which is interesting because if you go back some years, many of us were told to never share our data and now we're being encouraged to share our data to make our lives easier. So it's quite an interesting demographic there, but uh, yeah. I, I think it's got a lot of opportunity and a lot of merchants, You probably when you go to pay your credit card now or HMRC, you'll see open banking is already there. No, that's quite an interesting point you make about that switch around in terms of our data, absolutely. So who's open banking going to benefit then? I think consumers will benefit from the fact that it makes their lives easier and when you go to make a payment you can budget more accurately, you can see what's in your bank at any point in time, particularly with the cost of living crisis where some customers are budgeting like food, petrol and broadband TV, mobile. So it's kind of giving customers more of an insight into how to budget, so that's really useful. For merchants, I think the benefit there is it's less clunky for a consumer to have to put in that 16-digit card number every time or security codes. I think it's it's a security around it as well and the fraud prevention element. So there's a lot of opportunity for open banking for both the merchant and the consumer. Yeah, and then I guess embedded finance is then the next step after open banking. I think so, yeah. O2 and Virgin Media do handset finance already. So when you get those iPhones or latest Samsung phones, some customers take loans over two or three years for that now. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there for open finance and going back to that data element, that data can be used in lots of different ways. Merchants can use it for affordability checks, they can use it for fraud checks, and so there's lots of opportunities there to make consumers' lives much easier. Let's just finish up with your priorities regarding the payment infrastructure at Virgin Media. Well, our challenge is, you're probably aware that Virgin Media and O2 are merging together, two very different businesses. So our priorities will be to make our consumers' journey much easier to understand. So instead of getting separate invoices for your mobile product, your insurance, your broadband. We've got to merge all those consumers onto one billing system. And we have business customers as well. As well, So we're doing exactly the same thing there. So I think the end game is to have less payment platforms, less providers, moving to a one-stop shop solution where if something goes wrong, you just bring one person instead of five or six. So yeah, we're, we're definitely looking at uh, amalgamating all those businesses into a much better customer experience. Sounds like you've got a big job in your hand, David. Yeah, we yeah, it's a big that. one. I, I could be here for years doing this, but no, I, we're hoping to do that all within the next two to three years. Well, all the very best with that. David Cox, thanks for joining me here Thank today. Thank you very much. No, much appreciated. No, good to see you. 
Joining me now is Dastan Shukanayev, who's the Senior Payments Technology and Strategy at Marks & Spencer. Dastan, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. Now, you're speaking on a panel around embedded finance, aren't you, here at Fintech Talents. What challenges and opportunities does embedded finance present for Marks & Spencer? I think there are plenty of value creation around the embedded finance. So if executed correctly in a, in a holistic way, then we can create an additional value for, for the business and for the customers. And as the generational shift is happening in lifestyle, we are seeing people moving away from banking, traditional banking, into an omnichannel financing options, which is BNPLs or is going to be an in-house closed loop. So we've introduced our own SparksPay, but we believe there are a lot of other options which can capture different customer segments. So constant discovery mode, I would say, for, for the company. Do you think this opens up new revenue streams for Marks & Spencer? Definitely. So I think at any point, any company is not capturing all the, all the customer points. And you would think that you are profitable and then you, you're growing. But at the same time, there are so much you're missing out because of people's profiles, backgrounds, and then how they want to pay for their goods and services. So there are certain ways of habits which we used to do since our childhood, which is hardwired. So sometimes the new habits develop with the new products, but in order to capture that, you should be able to be agile enough to introduce them on time. So I think it, it's highly relevant to have this agility within the company of decision-making as well. Now, when putting this platform into place, how do you balance that frictionless customer experience that everyone expects, but also ensuring a safe and secure platform? For me, Apple is a very good example for everyone. They don't hold any regulatory or any liability in terms of that, but they provide a very secure gateway. So I think the that any e-commerce should provide this security for the customer, but without any financial regulatory liability, which I think so acting as a secure gateway is, is the number one priority for anyone. And that entails a lot of user experience designs and being more predictive of the actions of your customer. And I think with the introduction of AI and Gen.I, I think there are a lot of possibilities basically going forward. Now, fraud is obviously a hot topic at the moment with the advent of technologies like AI. What do you see as the main threats around fraud and identity theft? The fraud is getting creative and it's becoming more humane. So there is less automation within the fraud, but it's becoming more smarter. It's becoming a lifestyle, actually. If there was hackers, there were fraudsters, now I think you can basically buy any fraud instruments and identity details from the black market and everyone can become a fraudster. It's turning into a life earning stream for many people. So I think we are facing huge challenges in that regard and we're just seeing the, the tip of the iceberg at this, at, at this stage now. How do you go about combating these threats? I think having a robust fraud rules is good and then as well as introducing strong customer authentication flows as well as embedding AI fraud mechanisms as well. So I think going forward it's going to be AI against AI in some ways, but we have a quite a good fraud rules, but still you never know what's going to happen because you can see 
these days, a lot of companies are getting hacked. It's quite a challenge. So even though you don't have a fraud, but you never know what's coming next. Challenging times indeed, but thanks for giving us your insights today, Dustin Shukanayev. Thank you. I'm here with Alex Dorobantu, who's the Senior Director of Global Payments at Delivery Hero. Alex, nice to see you. Nice to be here. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, so what brings you to this event? I love the idea of this event because there were so many companies that I wasn't aware of, and uh, they offer interesting payments-related services, but not necessarily payments. So it's a way for me to kind of expand my horizon a bit and learn more about what's out there in the you know, embedded finance space, in the identity space. These are areas that don't directly relate to payments, but they're very close. So who are Delivery Hero? Could you give us a bit of an insight to the company? Yes, Delivery Hero is one of the largest food delivery companies in the world. We are a public company. We do around 45 billion euros GMV per year. And we operate in 70-something countries, so we are very complex in terms of uh, you know, operating because of, of the emerging markets we operate in and also because of the, you know, the many countries and the many platforms that we operate Yeah, sure. And you're busy here at FinSec Talents as well, aren't you? You've got two sessions that you're appearing on. Let's talk about the first one, which is around embedded finance. So what are your thoughts about the trends in embedded finance at the moment? Yeah, it, it feels that the big banks are kind of a bit getting decomposed and uh, more and more of their services are being taken by other ecosystem players and merchants have a nice opportunity to kind of increase the loyalty of their brand by offering some of the, um, some of the financial services as well. It's very important for merchants to, to figure out, in my opinion, what are the, the financial services that make their offering better. A lot of times, uh, and I actually see this a lot, a lot of times merchants think about building fintech units in order to recast their company into a fintech company and increase their multiples and, uh, you know, the CFO's biggest dreams come true that you're no longer a shitty business that's valued at, you know, one times revenue, but you're a fintech company valued at 20 times revenue. But I don't think that's the right reason to go into, into fintech as a merchant. It's more about, like, can you have a, a clear synergy between the product that you're offering and the financial service that would make your product better. Because otherwise, just having a marketplace of financial services, nobody goes to a food app to get financial services. You need to have like this, this synergy with whatever you're doing. Yeah, and then the second session you're going to be speaking on is around the digital wallet, isn't it? From online to offline. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so I think in the future, there will be more and more merchant wallets. It seems that Having a wallet is a great opportunity to engage your customers more and it seems that they perform better in terms of loyalty and in terms of you know payments performance also. The customer lifetime value increases, frequency increases, average order value, everything. So there will be more and more of these wallets and you can see already most of the big merchants have this. I think the magic happens when this merchant wallet becomes open loop wallet right where you can it's not just a feature of a website but it's an actual experience that you can take to other places as well and i think this is where wallet service providers are are kind of working a lot to be able to enable this i think there are also other types of companies that are are trying to get into this space where they're trying to maybe provide merchant 
wallet solutions that don't even rely on a ledger. A company that comes to mind, for example, is Bluecode that I like. They're a payment scheme that is able to offer the wallet solutions without the burden of having customer top up, which seems very interesting. I think this will be very interesting to see in the next five to 10 years how, how the merchant apps start kind of building ecosystems. You see this already in Southeast Asia, for example, where you have the likes of Alipay, WeChat, or even in outside of China, you have GrabPay, which is a big delivery and rights merchant there that has their payments ecosystem quite uh, quite expanded. So it would be very interesting to see if this comes to Europe. Yeah, now. some really interesting trends there. So, well, good luck for your sessions. Good luck for everything you're doing at Delivery Hero. And Alex Doran-Bantu, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Have a good day. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Embedded Finance Unplugged from the FinTech Talents Festival here in London. A big thank you to all my guests for sharing their thoughts and insights. Please like, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about Andaria's Embedded Finance offering, please visit andaria.com. But for now, thank you for listening and goodbye.